This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Clostridium difficile is a toxin-producing bacteria that has the potential to cause a rather severe form of antibiotic-associated diarrhea known as Clostridium difficile infection, or CDI. Cases can vary from mild diarrhea to severe colitis that at times can be fatal. There's been a dramatic increase in the number as well as severity of C. difficile infections in the United States over the past 20 years. Although CDI typically occurs following the use of antibiotics, it can also be spread from one individual to another, especially in hospitals and skilled nursing facilities. Antibiotics have been the traditional treatment for patients with CDI. However, recurrent symptoms have been a problem. There's now a new treatment for CDI felt to be effective in over 90% of patients with the illness. And with us today to discuss C. difficile infection and the current recommendations for treatment is Dr. Maria Vasquez, a gastroenterologist at the Mayo Clinic. Maria, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Daryl. Great to be here. Well, let's start by having you describe maybe a typical patient with C. difficile infection. How do they present? What's, what happens to them? So, you know, a very typical story is a patient that went in to have a dental job done and they receive antibiotics after the dental work was completed. And usually within two to three weeks or so of completing the antibiotic uh, that was prescribed to them, they present with explosive watery diarrhea with associated symptoms of abdominal cramping and pain, potentially nausea and vomiting. And that's usually how it presents. So the diarrhea is pretty profound, you know, pretty watery, at least three or more bowel movements per day. So it's a, a big variation from what their baseline bowel function had been. Very foul smelling. That's pretty typical for the patients to com- make that complaint. It usually is lasting over three days or more. So I, that's the usual typical presentation. They took an antibiotic for a particular reason, but dental work is pretty common. And then all the symptoms begin after completing the antibiotics. So can this occur after, is it more likely to occur rather after a prolonged course of an antibiotic or use of multiple antibiotics or even just one antibiotic for a short period of time? Is, is anybody at increased risk for this with the antibiotic use? What we know today in regards to the risk factors of CDI is much more than we probably knew 20, 30 years ago, right? We recognize that broad spectrum antibiotics are probably at higher risk. So that's always why there's so much interest in ensuring that you narrow down therapy as quickly as possible whenever you get any culture results, et cetera, in the appropriate context. But also we recognize too that there are some patient populations that are greater risk of contracting it or even getting complicated presentations, particularly patients that are immune suppressed for any particular reason um, from a treatment perspective or cancer, for example, age. So we recognize that patients with the age of greater than 65 are more likely to have a complicated presentation. So we recognize though that there's different variances from the environment, but also in the individual that may increase the risk of getting the infection. Do patients generally always get these GI symptoms? Are, are there, is there a wide variety or variation in degree of symptoms? 
So to really have the CDI disease, if you will, there has to be the presentation of having the diarrhea, right? Because that's how we know that there's been toxin released from the bacterium that leads to the diarrhea, the, the colitis that occurs with, with CDI infection. So diarrhea is, is necessary. But the presentation, as you had mentioned earlier, could be mild where many patients could be treated in the outpatient setting. But it's a spectrum where it could be all to all to the pendulum can swing all to the way to where patients can have severe sepsis, have altered mental status, fever, acidotic, and be extremely ill in the ICU setting, right? Even uh, at times requiring vasopressors uh, for management and even mechanical ventilation in some situations. This basically represents an overgrowth of the uh, Clostridium difficile organism based on the fact that the antibiotic has killed a lot of the good flora. So is C. difficile present in everybody or just in some? There is a, a number of patients that could be asymptomatic carriers and could still be shedding the bacterium, right? Um, we recognize that the bacteria of C. difficile create spores, which is sort of like this protective covering and so it can survive good, uh, longer periods of time and surfaces. It could be transferred through food, through uh, surfaces that are not properly cleaned, et cetera. And because of specific patient factors, some people could actually be transient carriers and no longer and get through the bacteria through their stool and pass it and never have an infection, right? There's multiple strains of CDI, so not all of them will be toxin producing. So that's more things that we know about um, C. difficile. But then, of course, some people may get basically ingest the bacteria and never get an infection, right? Um, they could be colonized with it, but never really get an infection. Or years could go by, and when there's different changes in their system, then there could be an activation of it starting to create toxin. Those are more patients that are become more kind of permanent carriers versus those are, those are transient. So there are patients that can be completely asymptomatic and, and still shed the, the bacteria. Okay. Well, we've talked about antibiotics and particularly broad spectrum antibiotics as kind of being the culprit behind this, but are there other medications other than antibiotics that can result in this as well? Antibiotics tend to be the biggest offenders because how it alters the, the microbiome flora in the colon. And from a medication perspective, uh, that has been the one that has, antibiotics collectively are the ones that have been associated with impacting the microbiome to the point of causing alterations uh, significant enough that CDI infection can occur. So having worked in a nursing home for many years, uh, we were quite worried about a patient who was transferred to us with the history of uh, C. difficile infection. How contagious is this for other patients? How much do we really have to worry about patients in the hospital or uh, in long-term care facilities? I think overall it is very contagious because of its ability to survive in surfaces for long periods of time. And as you mentioned, nursing homes tend to be quote-unquote hotspots of this because a lot goes into, as you can imagine, into hand hygiene and making sure that everybody's washing their hands in between patients correctly, appropriately, and particularly when staff are working in, with multiple patients at the same time, C. difficile is transferred to the fecal-oral route, right? So it's essentially touching surfaces that are infected. Individuals that might have not washed their hands properly could transfer by touching other patients, etc. 
So it is very contagious because of its ability to survive in surfaces for prolonged periods of time. And of course, in situations and scenarios like the nursing home, multiple staff members interacting with multiple patients uh, throughout the day could easily transfer it to different patients. And of course, patients in nursing home have usually older age, right? Um, kind of getting into the risk factors of greater risk factors from a comorbidity perspective and age. So it's far more easier for them to not only become colonized, but also um, have active uh, disease. So, but the typical course is after antibiotic therapy. How mm -hmm. soon, I mean, does it happen immediately after antibiotic therapy or is there a delay? When do we expect to see symptoms if they're going to occur? Typically, it's within a four-week period. That's the vast majority. Uh, there's been studies looking at this and a little over 80% of cases when they present has been within four weeks of antibiotic treatment. As you can see, I'm not saying 100% because there are maybe some patients, depending on their factors, et cetera, they're younger, they may not really present on it with it initially, right? And within that four week period, and there may be some delay in the presentation, but the vast majority will present within four weeks. All right. So when we're considering this, we do have to look back a ways and see if the patient has had any antibiotic even as long as a month ago. Correct. Right. So let's say we suspect a patient has this. Uh, where do we start? Are there laboratory tests that are useful, imaging studies? What do we do next? As any other clinician would do in their practice, it's first important to get a good history. Mm -hmm. And that part of the history should include making sure that they're not taking laxatives and no other confounding factors that may be leading to diarrhea and ensuring that the, systems have, the symptoms have persisted at least three days, three or more watery stool per day. And once kind of those issues are fulfilled from a history perspective, here comes the rub, it's the testing piece. There's a lot of heterogeneity on how these different labs and centers pursue the testing for C. diff, but the modalities that have been more widely accepted now is going through a multi-step testing paradigm. Essentially, getting a stool sample, and there's different tests, right? So many people have probably heard about PCR, toxin, GDH antigen, and they're all measuring different aspects of the bacterium, right? Um, I'll try to kind of summarize and try not to get too confusing for our audience, but GDH antigen is an antigen that is very specific to the C. difficile wall that covers or encapsulates the bacterium to both toxigenic and non-toxigenic species. So having the GDH antigen helps you to pretty much isolate to answer, okay, you do have a Clostridium difficile species. The question is, is it a species that is producing toxin or not? So the next step of that testing paradigm is then doing a toxin test because a toxin is really what you're looking for because that's really what causes disease. Having the presence of the bacteria alone does not equate of having disease. Not all C. difficile species will produce toxin. So I think that's the really important part because you want to make sure that in, depending on the clinical scenario, you are not treating patients that could be carriers of a different C. difficile species that it's not actually producing toxin and the diarrhea could be from a completely different infection. Usually the testing paradigm that's more widely accepted without much controversy, because as you can imagine, there's always controversy in medicine, is the GDH antigen, then the toxin assessment with the enzyme amino SI. And if those two are positive, 
and there's a clinical presentation with those three aspects being met, then you know for sure that that patient has active CDI disease and then you treat accordingly. PCR has also become a widely available test for C. difficile for patients. And some labs, some health facilities go straight to doing PCR testing. The challenge with PCR is that it has the, the risk of being a false positive test result. Having a positive PCR test doesn't mean that you have a toxigenic strain or that you're actually producing toxin. So I think that goes back that it's important that you test a patient with diarrhea because you absolutely do not want to test a patient that has formed stool because then that patient does not have illness or disease, right? But then PCR only tells you the presence of the bacterium, but doesn't tell you the presence of the toxin. And that's where you really want to be able to measure the toxin too. Mm -hmm. So having said that, many uh, paradigms and Mayo has shifted to this is doing the GDH antigen I mentioned earlier with the toxin through um, enzyme immunoassay. If there's discordance between those two, then the lab will go ahead and do a PCR. And the, if the PCR is positive at that juncture, then you are more confident that you are dealing with a toxin producing bacterium and then you treat accordingly. Because I think that's a big challenge too that we and many patients face where they're potentially getting treated as a carrier state rather than an active illness or disease state. So, mm -hmm. and I think that goes back to the part ensuring that we're treating accordingly, et cetera, with antibiotics because we don't want to overuse antibiotics either, right? Sure, um, right? That's maybe what got us to this problem in the first time. So I just want to make sure I made that clarifying point too about testing to a PCR, just to kind of ensure that, you know, our audience goes and ensures that they're doing GDH and, and toxin first, the first line of testing for patients and using PCR more as a confirmatory testing whenever necessary. Right. Is a colonoscopy needed at all in the evaluation of these patients? Very rarely honestly. Nowadays, with the increased sensitivity and specificity by following that sort of treatment algorithm, the confidence that that is the source of the illness is extremely high. So you can actually go forward and treat the patient without having to do an invasive intervention like a colonoscopy. Not to say that in some situations where there may be doubt that the diagnosis is appropriate, then a colonoscopy or even a flexible sigmoidoscopy, a shorter scope, may be warranted to see if there's the presence of pseudomembranes um, in the colon, which are pretty typical of C. difficile infection. All right. So let's say we've diagnosed C. difficile infection. Do these patients need to be hospitalized or can they be treated as outpatients? Or I imagine it depends on the severity of their illness. Yeah, that's pretty much it, Daryl. A lot of it will depend on their presentation. We tend to see this pattern where majority of patients that are at a younger presentation of their age and less comorbidities most often could be treated in the outpatient setting because they just have a mild presentation. Yes, with the explosive watery diarrhea, but they don't have any septic-like picture, so you can treat them as an outpatient. Patients typically above the age of 65 or other comorbidities tend to have often a more severe presentation where they may require hospitalization. Okay. Well, let's talk about the treatment. What's been the traditional treatment? So I think that's a good way of putting it because there's the traditional and the newer right approach. Because CDI infection has become an area of important focus in public health in the last 10, 15 years, if not more, the newer guidelines have been published, but the traditional treatment had usually been metronidazole or flagell. 
-hmm. for a 10 day period. I mean, typically it's a generic, it's widely available, it's inexpensive. So it's always very easy to obtain for the general population. Then vancomycin was also the other antibiotic that became an alternative treatment for patients in the treatment guidelines for CDI. Vancomycin, of course, being a little bit more expensive option compared to metronidazole, but decently effective, right, from that perspective compared to metronidazole. But of, of course, there was always some potential challenges from a financial aspect for some patients to be able to afford it. There's alternatives of using a compounding version of it that tends to be a little bit less inexpensive compared to the uh, pill form of the vancomycin. But those were the two generally accepted treatments from a guideline perspective in the traditional treatment approach. Having said that, there's a traditional, but now the newer guidelines that have been published have actually changed the treatment course a little bit when it comes to the treatment of CDI. I recall treating patients in the distant past with metronidazole, and one problem that I would occasionally see is recurrent infection, recurrent symptoms. That historically has been one of the biggest challenges with metronidazole, right? It has been that the recurrence rate is roughly about 30% yeah. after the first infection. Once you have a recurrence, typically you would want to avoid whenever possible treating with the same antibiotic. Prior guidelines actually encourage, we'll treat again, but we're kind of now shifting that paradigm somewhat because the likelihood of another recurrence continues to increase with ongoing recurrences. What do we do now? What's the current thinking? Yeah, so the current thinking and from guidelines that were published by the IDSA, which is the Infectious Diseases Society, essentially a newer antibiotic came in the market in the early 2010s. It's called fidaxomycin. And that antibiotic was much more selective towards the C. difficile bacterium. And studies have shown that it has higher concentrations in stool, et cetera. But of course, as you can imagine, the cost has always been a challenge for a variety of patients, but, um, and it's commercial name, it's deficit. But prior guidelines did not incorporate this antibiotic until more data was published. And it came to the point where now there's enough data published um, that it does support adding fidaxomycin to the treatment guidelines. So the newer guidelines have actually has shifted away from metronidazole. So they've actually recommended not using metronidazole unless there's no access to fidaxomycin or vancomycin. So first treatment should be either the fidaxomycin or vancomycin. Okay. Well, let's talk about the maybe not so glamorous treatment, but uh, one that appears to be highly effective, and that's uh, fecal transplant. Yeah, I always kind of joke about this, but when patients are able to get through the yuck factor of the concept, right, it becomes a very acceptable and palatable alternative. I was telling this to a patient yesterday, this is the ultimate probiotic. If we go to the nuts and bolts, essentially stool is trillions of bacteria, small microorganisms such as viruses, fungi, parasites. And of course, we, we always think about microorganisms and bacterium as bad things, but actually in the grand scheme of things, the vast majority of them actually do good things for the gut health, particularly in the colon. And so having a good diversity of bacterium and microorganisms in our colon is actually a good thing. So the more diverse the microscopic world is in your colon, the better it is. What happens is that through our lifetime, that diversity gets impacted 
by antibiotics, our lifestyle, our lack of exercise and sedentary lifestyle, what we eat, you know, more pizza, more hamburgers, more hot dogs, more processed foods versus less kind of cleaner foods. So all those things do impact our gut microbiome, right? And that divert microbial diversity, getting altered through time and then antibiotic exposures throughout our lifetime creates enough imbalance in that diversity that then exposure to C. difficile can lead to the disease. Whereas in different situations, if we have great diversity, we may get exposed to it, but never have a problem and we could just eliminate the bacteria and never be an issue. What happens is that you want to bring back that diversity. We know that when patients continue to have recurrences and fail the standard medical treatments, the vancomycin, the fidaxomycin, or the metronidazole whenever indicated, you're pretty much at a standstill because your ability to respond to an antibiotic course drops to 15 to 10%. What do you do to be able to overcome the infection with this bacterium? And it's pretty much bringing that microbial diversity back. And the best way to accomplish that is through a fecal transplant or FMT. FMT is not a new thing. You know, if you go back to the historical backgrounds of all of this, even in the Chinese dynasty, all these doctors, really smart doctors in the Chinese dynasties were actually doing certain similar concoctions with patients with uh, dysentery in those times. But we understand now more from a molecular and microbiology perspective what we're doing, right? We are improving the microbial diversity to be able to impact this Clostridium difficile bacterium. And the way to accomplish it is getting stool from a healthy donor and transferring it to a disease colon. And that's pretty much it, the overarching goal of it. And typically we would transfer it through a colonoscopy because we want to be able to transfer the stool to pretty much touch the entirety of the colon and start improving the diversity of the bacterium in the colon immediately. Hmm. Now you mentioned the fecal transplant being an ultimate probiotic. What about probiotics? Should we be recommending our patients take a probiotic when they're just completed a course of antibiotics? Is there any evidence to suggest that's useful? Yeah, that's a great question because I think I probably get it out of 11 out of 10 patients in the clinic. They're either on probiotics by the time they get to me. So it's a very timely question because even now the American Gastroenterology Association came out with guidelines about probiotics because everybody goes to the supermarket, to health food stores, and they're everywhere. But what does it mean? Realistically, for a bacteria to have good beneficial effects for the host, for the patient, it has to be a live bacteria. Dead organisms do nothing, right? I mean, they're not doing any favor to us. The short answer is that probiotics are not beneficial, right? Not to treat at all. There's very weak evidence to suggest that using a specific probiotic when you are taking antibiotics may potentially help reduce or prevent a CDI infection, but it's weak evidence at best. So collectively, for the most part, the answer on probiotics is no. Okay. Well, why don't we uh, summarize by asking you to uh, give us maybe two or three key points surrounding a C. difficile infection. The most important thing I always try to remind my patients and even other colleagues that may call, may call and ask me is ensuring that you're testing the right patient population, right? Ensuring that they have diarrhea, the, the watery stool, three or more days, no laxatives, no tube feeds, those are things that can basically, 
the patient may present with diarrhea, like particularly in a hospital-based situation if they have tube feeds, but if the test comes back positive, you could be measuring a carrier state, right? So you wanna be careful in those situations. Those are things to think about that you, if you, the patient's on tube feeds, make sure you stop them, wait 24 hours and reassess, right? Because the diarrhea could resolve. You know, if it doesn't, then we're talking about true disease there. The other aspect of take home point that I always try to remind patients, because I think this happens a lot in other physicians, is we don't test for cure. And I think this happens a lot because of the psychologic impact of a negative test result, right? Um, it does provide a lot of psychological safety to a patient to demonstrate, oh, listen, you're, now you're get rid of the CDF, it's negative. Because we all recognize we, patients nowadays have so much access to information and they read. Unfortunately, there's a lot of information out there and there's the negative information, the really bad stuff, although it's not as common, but it still happens. And there's always that fear factor uh, that's in patients, but we don't test for cure. And that's a consistent issue that's continuously published in guidelines. The reason for that is because the spores of C. diff can linger in the stool sometimes up to 30 days, if not a little bit longer. So many labs sometimes even have limitations and restrictions or retesting within a seven-day period or even within a 30-day period to avoid that specific scenario. Because you don't want to run yourself into a situation where you either treat the test or you treat the patient. You really have to go back and focus on the patient outcome. Are they clinically improved? Then that's what you're looking for no test for cure. And, th and that's an important piece because it happens still a lot and it creates situations where patients are getting retreated with antibiotics unnecessarily. Okay. And the other take on point I, is the treatment piece of things and reminding our audience that metronidazole is no longer recommended as first line of treatment. Their vancomycin and then fidaxomycin are the, the first uh, two antibiotic options in the first line of treatment really reserve metronidazole in a situation like I mentioned earlier. Can the patient afford the other two options? Is it available, et cetera? Because all those scenarios are always plausible, right? And you, every patient situation and scenario has to be individualized, but just making sure, because I still see sometimes patients getting two and three courses of metronidazole and continue to recur. That paradigm has shifted realistically with what we know now, so. Okay. Well, and having worked in the division of preventive medicine, I need to add one other take-home point, and that's prevention is important, mm -hmm. and I encourage everybody to use antibiotics judiciously. So we've been discussing C. difficile infection and its management with Dr. Maria Vasquez, a gastroenterologist at the Mayo Clinic. Maria, this has been a great discussion. Thank you for sharing your expertise with us. Thank you. Appreciate it so much. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please subscribe. Stay healthy and see you next week. Music